So we're in part two of Titus this week, um, of chapter one. We're going to start in verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10 through 16, and then we'll explore that text together. Let's just thank God for the word in this powerful book. Remember, Paul is speaking to a spiritual son of his, Titus. He's preparing him to function and be productive in ministry in his absence. Paul knows that his course is going to end in martyrdom. He's keeping the faith. He's running the race. He's fighting the good fight, but he knows to prepare for his exit. So he prepares Titus as he prepares Timothy, as he prepares the churches for his exit. And we see Titus being coached here on how to be a a productive, uh, powerful man of God to produce growth in the churches. Father, we thank you tonight for this book. We thank you for its relevance in our own lives today. We are your ambassadors. We are those who carry the gospel to a, a culture that is dark. And Father, we need this coaching and we need this instruction as much as Titus needed it in his day. So Father, drive it deep into the hearts of your people and help us to be apologists, defenders of the faith, preachers of the gospel, and those who would win souls in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. For they are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Man, how'd you like to have that kind of prophet? This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Wow. The language in Scripture doesn't get much stronger than what we just heard. And Paul is laying it on the line. He's giving it to Titus both barrels. He's not holding back because it's a serious position that Titus is in. Remember, he's in Crete. He's ministering to Cretans. You've heard that word Cretan before because they have a reputation and some of the attributes of their character is uh, uh, kind of examined here and uh, it's something that Titus needs to be made aware of so he can minister to them effectively. Now, Paul is coaching Titus. We, We mentioned that. He needs to be able to handle the trouble in the local church so he can keep the doctrine solid and the church healthy. To be an effective leader, one must be willing to call out wrong behavior, not just in the world, but also in the church. Hello, Wednesday night. Isn't it easy for us to pick on the world? I mean, we could just take what was on the news today, and I can just go, you know, for an hour about, you know, what our culture is becoming and what our leadership is doing and and all the deception and all the end times markers that we're seeing. I mean, we could just rant and rave about it, but it's easy to pick on the world. The truth is, though, a good leader can't just identify the anomalies in the world and the immoralities in the world. A good leader has to also spot them within the ranks of the church and correct them there. 
Now, that's much harder to do because you have to step on toes, and sometimes you have to say things to people that are going to hurt them, and you love them. A shepherd loves sheep. My favorite meat is lamb. But a shepherd, <laughs> shepherd has to love sheep. Amen? So as a pastor, as a shepherd, the last thing I want to do to anybody is correct them sternly or have to, you know, get in their face and, and talk them off the ledge. Why? Because, you know, it hurts me as much as it hurts you many times. Now, if you're looking at me like you don't believe me, it's true. The thing is, when you love your sheep and you have to correct them when you see them going astray, sometimes as a, as a leader, you have to take a risk to, you know, maybe hurt them, maybe offend them. Uh, but you have to do it to keep them safe. Now, honestly, we shouldn't be shocked about the pure nonsense that the, passes out there in the world for wisdom and morality and spirituality. You know, the world has its own definition of everything. Starting with love, it has its own code about conduct and what's fair and what's not fair. It has its own moral codes. A anybody? And the thing is that we shouldn't be shocked. You know, at this point, everything that's going on out there has also happened before. Did you ever hear a place called Sodom and Gomorrah? Look, we haven't invented any new sins. Maybe technology makes it easier, speeds it up, spreads it faster, but, but there's, no, there's nothing new under the sun. So we shouldn't be shocked that the world is dark, that the worldly wisdom is not biblical, that wor the world's morality and spirituality is counterfeit. We shouldn't be shocked by that. But listen, we so easily forget how we acted before we were saved. We so easily forget how, what we thought was moral and pure and just and worthy of pursuing before we got saved. Like, come on, I've, I've known people and then they get saved and you would think they were born full of the Holy Ghost, came out of their mother speaking in tongues, preaching the gospel. Smile, it's good for your face. And they forget, man, I, I mean, I was there. I was with you. I grew up with you. I grew up in this church. I was in the youth group here. I was, you know, the Lord kept me on a, on a good leash because I have to pastor some of the people that were there with me. And thank God. Hey, there, Kelly's waving at me back there. <laughs> Ask her. Tell her. She can tell you some stories, right? But the thing is, we shouldn't be shocked that it's in the world. We shouldn't be shocked that they're lost because, you know, that's what the lost do. They sin. They're lost in the dark. But we should, we should expect that that behavior not be carried into the church and then not refuted. See, when the world creeps into the church and the church accepts the ways of the world and the leadership from the pulpit doesn't correct it, now we've got leaven in the body that will destroy the purity of the church. So we can't let the dark into the light. Oh, you say, well, you know, darkness is swallowed up by light. Yeah, but when people stop shining their light, the darkness overtakes us. So Titus is being instructed. He's being coached because he's got a very serious job. In verse 10, Paul gets right down to business by stating the fact that those who are causing trouble in the church were many. Say many. For there are many unruly, vain talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision. Let's just unpack verse 10. There's a lot in there. It's one thing to say you have a few bad apples in the bunch. It's quite another thing to say you have a large bunch of bad apples. Hello? The Cretans 
were a large bunch of bad apples. It wasn't just a few here and there. Their culture was rotten, and it had carried into the church. So it wasn't just a few bad apples that were going to spoil the bunch. Paul's saying there are many here, for there are many unruly, vain talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision. So what the culture of the Cretans had crept into the early church, and it was a substantial number of people who had the poor character among the brethren. Now, what we needed to see in Crete is exactly what we need to see in America. We need a cultural revolution. And if you didn't say anything, you're part of the problem. Because it's time for the church to speak up. If you can't say amen in church at that one, if that's not something that's a burning passion in your heart to see a cultural revolution that we would depart from darkness. America right now is in darkness. We are immoral. We, we are steeped in sin. We are in love with abortion and, and, and liberality that departs from the things that made this nation a godly nation. And, and in so many ways, the church is silent about us. Well, you know, you know, it's the end times, and I guess, you know, this is just the way it's supposed to go. No, 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 no. The, the thing is not going to come unglued till the church is removed. When God removes the restrainer, that's the Holy Spirit that's in the church, then this is all going to come unglued. But listen to me. As long as we're still here, we need to be light in the darkness, and we shouldn't shrink back, and we shouldn't just accept sin and immorality. We've got to be more forceful with the lights. So it wasn't just a few bad apples. It was a whole lot of bad apples. It was the many. They needed a cultural revolution like we needed a cultural revolution. The gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit had to replace and create decades of wrong thinking and behavior. Does that sound familiar? Decades of wrong thinking and behavior have led us right now to a culture that's uh, it's unbiblical, it's anti-God, it's hostile towards the gospel. Now, some of the marks of the many, he's saying there's many, is, is there was three of them. They were unruly, there were vain talkers, and there were deceivers. So let's look at that. What does it mean to be unruly? How many have ever been described as a child as unruly? You liars. Good, a couple honest people. You know, maybe your teacher said that to the class. The class is being unruly. Maybe your parents said to that. Maybe they used different words. I'm not going to use them. Just try and connect the dots for me here. Unruly. What does that mean? Well, unruly people are people who categorically never fall in line. Nonconformists. Have you ever met people like that? No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what the issue is, they will take the opposite side of it. They, are, they don't fall in line. They, they're counteractive to everything. They, they just want to do their own thing. They're unruly. They never fall in line with Scripture. They don't fall in line with church structure. They don't fall in line with godly leaders. They just constantly buck the system. Now, we've all met people like that. Sometimes they're blatant and they're easy to spot. Sometimes they're subtle and it takes a while to smell them out. But, you know, they're the ones who are always throwing little jabs in there. They're the ones always taking a shot at leadership. They're the ones that say, well, if I was in charge, I'd do it differently. They're the ones that just, you know, you say potato, they say potato. You say tomato, they say, no, it was corn. You were wrong. Just kidding. 
but they, they can't fall in line. And it's just, you say, well, what in the world is that about? Why are people like that? Did their mothers not hug them enough? Maybe. But really what's behind it is a spirit. It's the spirit of antichrist. It's an ungodly spirit. It's demonic. Why? Because it won't fall in line with God-ordained leadership. It wants to be in charge. It won't fall in line with church structure. It wants to do its own thing. It won't fall in line with the things of God because it, does, it has no interest in serving God. And they were unruly. What else were they? They were vain talkers. So what is that? People whose speech had only one purpose. When, you, when you're Vanity is something that's empty. It has no substance to it. A vain talker is someone whose speech has no substance to it. So they were categorically vain talkers. What does that mean? Their speech had one purpose, to bring attention to themselves. These were these ones causing trouble in the church. They only talked if it brought attention to themselves. They were the ones who, they always wanted their opinions and preferences heard. Come on. I'm giving you characteristics here. They're scriptural. Tuck these things in your heart. Vain talkers only want to elevate themselves, talk about themselves, have their opinions heard, bring attention to themselves, spout off about their achievements. Have you ever been around somebody like that? We all have. That they, all they do is talk about themselves. You know, and if you, you know, and all of us like to say something about, you know, what we're doing or what's going on in our lives. Isn't that true? Some people know. You just like to sit there. Uh, we'll get together after church. I'm going to talk for two hours, and you don't get to say anything. No, we all like, that's the, that's the point of conversing, that there's a mutual exchange, amen? The person who's a vain talker, you can't do that with them. The minute you start to talk about something other than them, they'll change the subject and rudely do it. So be, a, be able to spot this. What You say, well, Pastor Rick, how can you talk about that characteristic of this we can identify? It's a spirit. It has to act that way because that's the way the spirit acts. So they're unruly. They're vain talkers. It's all about me. You know, instead of when, when we were singing that part in the song, it's all about you, remember? It's all, they'd be singing, it's all about me. It's all about me. So they're unruly, they're vain talkers, and what? They're deceivers. Uh, now, let me just say one thing before we move on from vain talkers. If you want a biblical example, one of the quintessential uh, vain talkers in the Old Testament was David's son, Absalom. Who remembers Absalom? What did Absalom do? When David was busy, when David was disconnected from the people, when David was tired from all the wars and all the family drama and he sat in the house, Absalom sat at the gate and he talked to everybody as they came in. And he was a smooth talker and he was a vain talker. And what did he do with his smooth speech and his vain talk? He turned the hearts of the people away from God's anointed King David unto himself to the point where he led an armed rebellion against his father. His vain talking Absalom allowed him to sin. And in his immorality, he went with his, and laid with his father's concubines. Then he took a sword and an army and tried to kill his own father and take the throne. Don't ever underestimate what's behind vain speech. There's nothing good behind it. The motives are all rotten. When you spot it, guard yourself and begin to pray. Deceivers. 
People who have hidden agendas, people who don't want to serve the kingdom but are in the church, people who don't submit to leadership, they're unruly, they're nonconformist, they're going to have to work in deception. Why? Because they have a hidden agenda. What's the hidden agenda? To take people away from what God has ordained and gather them to themselves so that they can lead them and control them and fleece them. What's behind all the faults? Preachers and teachers, some of them that you see on TV, some of them that you hear on the radio, you know, what's behind all that? The motive is what? Filthy lucre. They want money and they want power and they'll use the kingdom to get it. So, you know, this is what is being talked about here. Now, the second half of verse 10 informs us that the troublemakers were primarily of the circumcision. What does that mean? They were half-converted Jews, Nobody likes a dry preacher. For there are many rebellious men, vain talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision. So understand that the early church was primarily made up of Jews who had converted and believed in Jesus as Messiah. The Gentiles were an afterthought. It's for the Jew first, then the Gentile. Paul was raised up as an apostle after the early church is already established. It's primary primarily Jews. The Gentiles are going to be engrafted in and eventually become the majority. But at this point, they're primarily Jews there. Now understand, when he says that it was, you know, the the troublemakers were specifically from the circumcision, it means that these Jewish people came in, but they didn't really get converted in their hearts. So they had an agenda to mix Old Testament legalism or, you know, Old Testament tradition or even circumcision, we're going to see. They had this desire to graft that in and add Jesus to it. Now, you can't take anything and add it to the gospel and still have it be the gospel. So these people had a wrong heart. What was the problem? They were half converted. They didn't come into the fold to surrender their lives to Christ and to forsake the old covenant and enjoy the benefits of the new covenant. They wanted to make a a bastardized hybrid of the two and start their own thing, and it was not of the Holy Spirit. That was worth coming out for tonight. Understand, legalism dies hard in certain people's hearts. You know, unless we get too cocky, we can get legalistic about a lot of stuff too. Evangelicals, charismaniacs, whatever you want to call yourself, born-again Christians, we can get just as legalistic about things as any church there ever was. And so once you become legalistic about something and it becomes a tradition, boy, it dies hard. And it was dying hard in these circumcised believers here. It was dying hard in these Jews. Yeah, they, they liked this idea of Jesus, but they didn't like the idea of letting go of all their tradition, of all their law, of all their old systems. And so they tried to meld the two together understand where the division was coming from. There was going to have to be a separation from the old and a complete embracing of the new in order for the church to stand in purity. Verse 11 shows how vital it is that those described in verse 10 be stopped. So we, we talked about some of the marks you know, of those people, uh, and, and, and it has to be stopped. And look, if you look at 11, it says, who must be silent, say must, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain or filthy lucre. So uh, understand something here. 
the problem in the church couldn't just be ignored. It couldn't just be pacified. It couldn't just be, you know, well, we'll, it'll just go away if we, you know, if we just are kind and we don't say, no, it had to be stopped. Look at this. For whose mouths must be stopped. The King James is a little more forceful. Who subvert whole houses, subversion, undermining whole houses, teaching things what they ought not to teach for filthy lucre's sake. So, you know, let's dig into this a little bit. False teachers must be shut down. Wrong doctrine must be rooted out. Now, do all of us have perfect doctrine? Absolutely not. There's a place in Scripture where, in the book of Revelation, where the church is raptured and in the presence of God, and there's a, there's a time of silence in the heavens. And some theologians postulate that this is the time where God takes all our twisted theology, all our wrong thinking, and he gets everybody on the same page. All the post-trib people that are there pre-trib, and they're mad now because they were wrong. All the people that were filled with the Holy Ghost and all the people who said there was no Holy Ghost. I mean, it's going to take a little time, a little silence in heaven for all that stuff. Now, you know, we don't know if that's exactly what happens then, but that's one theory. Uh, somehow, some way, we're all going to have to get on the same page, amen? Maybe just when we see Jesus, uh, he'll enlighten our understandings and we'll just know what was true and what wasn't true. But it does say in Scripture that, you know, those who teach wrong things or, or, you know, teach, you know, heresy or whatever, that, you know, they'll be the least in the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that? Yeah. So be careful. If you don't know, say you don't know. Don't just make something up because you want to act like you know. Some things we don't know, so we don't build doctrine on them. So here we are. Uh, We've got false teaching in the church. Paul is telling Titus that the mouths of those who are doing it must be stopped. How do we do it? In two ways. Number one, they have to be openly rebuked from a platform of spiritual authority. There again, this is the onus on leadership. Leadership has to identify heresy, has to identify people with the wrong motives, and has to call them out. If they don't respond to correction privately, they must be openly rebuked publicly. You should see your faces. Pastor Rick, would you do that? I have done that. And fortunately, I can't think of a time where I had to do it publicly. When it was done privately, they wouldn't repent and they disappeared. And that's often how it works. But if I wouldn't, I'm going to share some things with you here in this message here about just situations that we've had to deal with at the Full Gospel Center. You know, and, and over the years, we've had to root people out who had wrong spirits, sexual immorality involved in active uh, relationships that were ungodly, just all kinds of things. You say, well, pastor, did you just, just pray about it and ignore it and don't, don't embarrass them? No, we had to root it out. And I'm so happy for the health of the church and the purity of the church that's here. And, and I'm so excited about it that I won't let wolves destroy it. So understand, you have to openly rebuke wrong teaching. And then, number two, you have to teach the truth in place of it. I've had people say things about Jesus' divinity, the, 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 the Trinity, and Jesus was, you know, the Son of God, but he wasn't really God. Absolutely wrong. And I rebuked them, and they repented, or they didn't repent, or they left, whatever. But then I would teach on those subjects as the Holy Spirit led me to strengthen the body because those murmurings go through the flock because people who are filled with the false do a lot of talking. 
They're vain talkers, right? So you have to rebuke them. You might have to do it openly. You might have to do it publicly. That depends on their level of humility. But then you have to truth to teach the truth. Why? Because once you let the truth loose, it destroys lies. The light dispels the darkness if we let the light shine. As verse 11 continues, it tells us what the leaven of false doctrine will invariably produce if we don't correct it and root it out. It says here, who subvert whole houses. Did you hear that? Teaching things what they are not for filthy lucre's sake. So uh, entire families have been destroyed, and I've seen this, and I've seen it in this church. I've been here since I'm 14 years old. I only left to go to Bible school and fool my wife into marrying me, then I came back. Okay, so I've seen a lot of stuff. Pastor Mike, you've seen a lot of stuff too. But understand something. When, when, you, when you see somebody come in and they're whispering, and what do they do? This is invariably what I've always seen them do. They go to the spiritually immature, the new converts, and they get involved with them, and they're always over their house, and they're always whispering in there. And then they want to start a Bible study group. They have no calling, no anointing, no training, but now they want to start a Bible study group in their home. And then it always goes off the rails, and they want to use spiritual gifts, and they begin to prophesy, but not according to the Holy Spirit, by a different spirit to control and to manipulate others. I told you, I've been around the block. And then what happens? Then they draw those people out of the church. Then what happens? Their marriages disintegrate. I've seen it a lot of times. And those in leadership who are listening to me now, they probably know some of the people I'm talking about. They attack the young ones. They deceive them. They put a hook in them. They destroy families. They destroy marriages. And it's just, I've seen it happen just like the scripture says. The remedy was once we see them, we attack them and root them out. If they won't repent, we throw them out. So all of this is applicable to us. Uh, you know, they come in and they subvert. They undermine whole families. And notice what the motive is, monetary gain, filthy lucre's sake. Now, we talked about, you know, the requirements for an elder. You can't curse like a sailor. You shouldn't be a lover of money, all of these things. This, one of the things is loving money, loving, you know, attention. But, you know, they want to fleece. There's always that component where they want to fleece that person financially. And understand that that's always going to be there. You got people asking you for money, asking you for donations, asking you to support this, asking you to be careful. We take offerings here. We take tithe here, and we sow it into good ground. I don't let just people, you know, fleece my people, take offerings, do this, do that. You know, people do GoFundMe pages, God bless you, whatever. But be very careful. Our giving needs to be directed towards the local church. When you got people trying to get in your pocket, you better really question their motives. So verse 12 through 13 is a cultural smackdown that Paul gives here. And he uses uh, some interesting sources to effectuate it. But it's going to be hard for the people of Crete to hear, just as it would be hard for us to hear. So it says, uh, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things what they shouldn't for the sake of uh, filthy lucre or sore gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own. So talking about a, a Cretan prophet here. I don't even know how that works out. Obviously, you know, maybe someone who spoke to their culture. But he says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Ouch! 
Could you imagine? Now, maybe there was a time in your life where you could look at that and say, I, I relate. Don't raise your hand. But some of us were pretty lost, right? The glutton part, I think most Christians can relate to. And verse 13 says, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. So let's unpack that a little bit here tonight. This is really a cultural smackdown. Uh, there are times, as I said, when leadership has to say hard things to people, and it's hard for leaders to do it. We've got to do it in love, but sometimes there's no way to lessen the blow. It's a hard thing. You know, uh, Right here, the, the, Paul is saying some hard things about the Cretans. They're going to read this epistle. They're going to know what he said. Uh, you know, leaders have to be willing to say hard things. Can I get an amen? Jesus did it many times in his own ministry. He only ministered publicly for three years, but he said things like, let the dead bury their dead. How do you think that went over? Oh, just give me some time to bury my father. Hey, let the dead bury their dead. That doesn't sound very nice, Jesus. In all the teaching and training I got in Bible school for doing funeral ministry, I never heard that one before. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no... What? That's when he lost a lot of followers. Did Jesus know that was going to be a hard thing to say? Absolutely. Why did he say it? Because people were following him casually without a real commitment level. So he said something that he knew would offend them. And it offended so many of them that he had to look at his own disciples and go, are you guys going to leave me too? And Peter, for one time, didn't put his foot in his mouth and said, Lord, where can we go? Who else but you has the words of life? So Jesus said hard things in his ministry. He called, you know, the religious leaders whitewashed walls and empty tombs and a brood of vipers, you know, all those things, just, you know, good customer relations there. So what I'm trying to point out here is that, you know, if Jesus was willing to do this uh, and, and say things that he knew were going to be tough, those who serve in the kingdom as under shepherds for him and even people of God. We have to be willing to say tough things to people sometimes. Now, look, you can be nice and say it in love, but you can't water it down. We've all seen preachers who go on TV and they go on the talk shows and they get asked certain questions and they get all wishy-washy and water it down. And what do we do? We sit in our living room and go, boo, boo. Well, if you engage in this behavior, will you go to heaven? Well, you know, it's not really for me to say God is a gracious God and not smack. Amen. Right? Amen. So leaders have to be willing to say tough things. Christians have to be willing to tell the truth, even when it's unpopular. Jesus did it. Let the dead bury their dead. He would cut right through it. Now, notice Paul is saying some things about Cretans here, but what he basically does is he quotes one of their own prophets or one of their own, you know, people who said some things about him. Now, this is a very wise approach. So, you know, the quote that he's giving here is not me, Pauling, say, Paul's not saying, I'm saying all Cretans are liars, evil, lazy, gluttonous beasts. No, he's saying one of your own has said that about you. No, when, when you have to correct character or a culture, that's a wise way to do it. Amen. Anybody want wisdom? Anybody like wisdom? Seen pictures, heard about it, watched it? 
live on TV. Wisdom is a good thing. If a French man wanted to criticize American character or culture, he would get a lot more traction if he quoted one of our leaders like Franklin or Jefferson or Mark Twain. You know, if he, if he just said it himself, you know, Winston Churchill was a master at this. He could say all kinds of things to different cultures using humor, and he would get his point across, and you'd be laughing, and then you'd go, hey... One time, Churchill said, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing once they've tried everything else. That's true. We avoided getting into World War II to the point where the, uh, the British had cracked the Japanese codes and knew that Pearl Harbor was about to happen, and they didn't tell us because we didn't have the moral backbone to stand up for them and fight alongside of them. We had to get drug into the war through an act of war that could have been avoided. So think about that for just a little bit. But, you know, Paul is a diplomat. He's an elder. Uh, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's someone who understands how to do things, so he quotes this Cretan guy. But then, you know, when he says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies, I didn't say that. Your guy said that. But then in verse 13, Paul agrees with it. So see, I want you to see the wisdom on how Paul handles things here. Uh, he, he says, you know, ba basically because the behavior of this people group, this culture is like this, uh, you know, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. So Paul is saying the remedy for all these cultural, uh, you know, weaknesses that the Cretans have is that you what? You have to rebuke them sharply. You know, some people, they just need a little nudge. Come on. Some people need to get shoved. Some people need to get hit with lightning. Everybody's different. As a young man, I ministered in different cultures. I ministered in different countries. And I often saw shepherds that were so hard on their people that as a young man, I was like, man, they're, they're hard on the people. They're almost legalistic. And the Holy Spirit showed me, son, you don't understand the culture. Unless the pastor is this hard, this strict, this far to this side, the people are never going to swing to the center. And I learned not to judge how other people shepherded their flocks. I learned to realize that they know better than I know, so I'm not going to call legalism. I'm not going to say, you know, this is wrong or you're too this or you're too that. I'm just going to watch the effect. Some people, you really need to shake them hard to wake them up. Some cultures are so sexually immoral that you have to swing to the opposite side of purity so far that, you know, you got to send them to the beach in, like, you know, a hazmat suit. Because, you know what, there's so much immorality there that, you know, <laughs> just a little bit and, and things get out of control. I've seen it. So if we have liberty and we have purity and we have holiness and we don't have to be that harsh, that's fine. But Paul's saying here, if the people are out of control, if they're, you know, basically the description there, they're, they're, their speech is out of control, they're, they're unsubmissive, they, they buck everything, they refuse to fall in line, then what? You've got to rebuke them sharply. So it's up to us what kind of correction we need. It's up to us, and God is faithful enough to do it because why? He wants us to stay in the faith and not go back to the things of the world. So realize 
you know, Titus is being told here, you're going to have to take the gloves off. You're dealing with Cretans. You're going to have to rebuke them. You're going to have to call them out. You're going to have to call them on a carpet, and you can't let anything go. Interesting. I don't know about you, but if I was Titus, I would look to see if there was another church I could go minister at. Verse 14 warns against spiritualizing cultural stories, oral history, and tradition as if they were biblical. It said, not giving heed to Jewish fables. Did you hear that? And commandments of men that turn from the truth. So there's a warning there. Why? Because these circumcised guys that were coming in, what were they doing? They weren't going with, you know, New Testament covenant true biblical, you know, the, the New Testament is being written here as the early church is being formed, but they're trying to bring Old Testament legalism in and their traditions. And look what it says, Jewish fables and commandments of men. So, you know, we got to look at this here. It's amazing to me how, you know, some Christians who sit in solid churches for decades, how they'll, they, they believe and do certain things that they haven't been taught. You could sit here, you know, I've had people sitting in our congregation that, you know, after hearing what we preach from the scripture on morality, move in with their boyfriend, move in with their girlfriend. They have abortions. They go, you know, they're out every weekend clubbing and drunkenness and hopping from bed to bed. Hello, Wednesday night. Let me just tell you what comes across my desk all the time. And I feel like I'm, you know, the morality cop because I'm responsible to God for what goes on, so I've got to confront things. And at the very least, you know, he's saying here, don't, don't spiritualize cultural things or, or traditional things as if they were biblical. You know, we believe, you know, Christians believe crazy things that are unscriptural and they should know better. You know, all of us have, have thought and heard and probably even said things that we thought were in the Bible that aren't. You realize that? I was doing a little study on this. You know, a lot of people will say that Adam and Eve, they ate an apple, but the Bible never says it was an apple. Pastor Mike thinks it's a peach. I tend to agree with him. It's a, you know, people say there are the three wise men at Jesus' birth. They weren't there. They came later. People will say a whale swallowed Jonah, but the Bible says a great fish. People make statements like cleanliness is next to godliness, and that's not in the Bible. Yet some people think it is. God works in mysterious ways. Not there either. How about God will never give you more than you can handle? Not there. How about God helps those who help themselves? Can't find it. It's crazy. But, you know, we hear this stuff all the time. We think, oh, that's the Bible. That's not in there. How about this one? Be in the world, but not of the world. You know, there's one time as a young preacher, I was looking everywhere for that. Now, the concept is there. You can find the concept, but that word by word, not there. Some people look shocked and sad. <laughs> that was my favorite thing to say. Well, you could still say it, but just it ain't in the Bible. So we got to be careful, you know, claiming things are biblical that are not biblical. Look what it says here, the commandments of men. Oh, this is where we really get in trouble. The law covenant applied legalistically uh, in the New Testament is an absolute no-no. We don't 
Legalism doesn't belong in the grace covenant. So if we take Old Testament legalism and try and make it part of, you know, New Testament Christianity, that's really wrong. But following man-made spiritual requirements is absolutely unprofitable. Oh, well, it's church teaching. It's church tradition. Yeah, well, that's nice. But you know what? I have no obligation to keep your tradition or your opinion or your preference. I'm going to live by this. Because in the end, this is what I'm going to be judged by. Well, you can't drink this, and you can't drink that, and you can't go there, and your hair's got to be cut, you know, just below your medulla oblongata, or you're not a Christian. If you don't know what that is, look it up. You didn't pay attention in science or biology. But, like, people would do that. I mean, remember, Pastor Mike, you got to have your hair cut like this. And if you have your hair, you're not a Christian if you, I mean, non-biblical stuff traditions, commandments of men, there's no, there's no merit to following them. Now, you know, if, if we glean wisdom and we apply things from the Scripture, or, you know, many times in life, you know, we have to learn wisdom, and that's all good and fine, but when we treat it as if it's biblical dogma and we force everybody to fall in line with it, that's false teaching. So in the next two verses here, Paul summarizes his point you know, he's talked about all of these Jewish fables and commandments of men and turning from the truth. He says in verse 15, unto the pure, all things are pure. That sounds good, doesn't it? But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Wow. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. You know, look at verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. False doctrine destroys a believer's innocence. It substitutes God's truth the commandments of man and then people get confused and they don't know what they can enjoy and what they can enjoy and they find uh, themselves in a, in a legalistic spider web and they're getting the life sucked out of them Whew. legalism kills grace and when you know if you're pure and you're in right relationship with god and you're walking in grace then you can enjoy life now look i gotta be honest with you there's sometimes you know, it's hard to enjoy life because you feel all the pressures of life and you don't know, do I have time to do this? Can I sit down? Can I read? Can I relax? Do I have to go, go, go? Do I have to do, do, do? Come on, anybody besides Pastor Rick? And there's times where I'm like, man, I, uh, I just had fun. Should I repent? I took a day off. Legalism. A lot of us coming up in the ministry were underneath that. It took me years to unwind from some of the legalism that was forced on me to the point where I could just enjoy being a pastor. So to the pure, all things are pure. So if you're having trouble, if you're not enjoying life, if you're constantly feeling you know, demoralized and you're feeling attacked and the enemy's bringing accusations against you, bring your heart before the Lord and let him show you what he requires of you, and then everything else, just let go of it. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, look what it says here, verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. So let's just conclude with verse 16 here. A few observations about those who plagued the church with false doctrine. They had rotten motives. It said they professed to know God, 
but in their works they deny him. Think about that. It's not, our, it's not our talk that proves what we know. It's our walk. It's not in us spouting off the right answer or the right doctrine or the right scripture. It's about how we live on a day-to-day basis, whether our lifestyle proves that we know God. In this case here, they're saying, you know what, they say they know God, but the way they live proves that they don't know God. So they could talk the talk, but they weren't even attempting to walk the walk. That's what you're going to see in people who have, you know, that false spirit. They don't even attempt to do the right thing. All of us mess up. All of us sin. All of us, you know, do things and say things and think things that we shouldn't. That doesn't mean we're not Christians. But if we don't even try to change that behavior, if we don't even try to move closer, if we don't repent with tears, and we don't experience brokenness over our own sin, then we need a heart check. Because, you know, it's one thing to talk the talk, and we've all seen it. We've all seen the hypocrite. Yeah, I can't even say it. Hippopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopopop
pure and safe. As Titus was commissioned to do, so are we commissioned to do, to do our part as kingdom people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.